Well, for those of you that are just uh, joining us for the first time this morning, whether online or in person, uh, you're kind of coming in towards the end of a series, uh, Who Needs God Anymore? And if you've, if you've missed any of this, I just really urge you to get on to newlifewichita.com or podcast.newlifewichita.com where you can download and listen or watch the videos and catch up on this series because this is uh, every one of us. Uh, either this is something we're wrestling with or every one of us in this room, we know someone in our life that needs to hear this series. And we began this conversation with the new atheists and other super smart men and women who see all religion as the problem, not just Christianity, but all religion or, or not just Islam. And they've defined for us what it means to embrace an existence where there is no God. And as we said from the beginning, maybe they're right. But atheism is much more complex than simply disbelief in God. It's a more complex belief system than that. And we discussed the versions of God that people have walked away from and that that's good because those versions of God never existed to begin with. Three weeks ago, we discovered that the foundation of the Christian faith isn't a book. The foundation of the Christian faith isn't the Bible. Rather, the foundation of the Christian faith is an event, the resurrection. And if you weren't here for that, it might sound like a shocking statement that flies in the face of everything you were raised or have been taught to believe. But before you get so offended that you just check out, you need to go back and listen or re-listen to that entire message because that statement fits into a specific context with a full explanation of what I mean. And then last week, we worked to get really clear to understand, okay, if these other versions of God don't exist, what was Jesus' version of God? Who was God according to Jesus? And today, I want to talk specifically about a big problem. It's a problem that I have been asked about more times than I can count. I've seen more posts and more memes on social media about this than, than any, other, uh, any other thing that I can think of as far as a problem when it comes to believing in God or believing for sure in a good God, more than any other subject or objection. And that is the problem of pain, suffering, and injustice in the world. Because more than any other topic, people have struggled and many have stepped away from, not necessarily into atheism, but stepped away from God because of their inability to reconcile a good and loving God with pain, suffering, and injustice in the world. But what you need to know is that this is primarily a big deal for Western people. Okay, for first world Americans or Canadians or Europeans, because for those of you like myself who have traveled into some different uh, difficult and different environments and difficult third world majority world areas of, uh, areas of the world or seen extraordinary poverty, what you've experienced or witnessed is that in the midst of extraordinary po poverty, you often find extraordinary faith, not extraordinary doubt. But the argument goes pretty much like this. If he's good, he would. If he could, he would. If God is good or if God could, then he would get rid of all pain, suffering, and injustice. So he either lacks good or he lacks could, which means there's a problem either with his ability or his character and his willingness. And because he can't or won't, there is therefore no good God controlling and running the universe, or there just simply is no God. And today, I just want to address specifically the logic behind this assumption. But before I want to do, I just want to caution some of you. I want to caution those of you who have ever leveraged pain and suffering in the world to argue against God. 
Over the years, I've actually talked with a number of people who have done this. I see this on social media all the time. If you've ever leveraged, uh, if there's a God, he's not good or he doesn't exist, which is evidenced by all of the pain and suffering and all the bad things that happen and exist in the world. If you've ever done that or maybe you've liked or affirmed someone else making that argument on social media or face-to-face, I just need to say this. Proceed with caution. Proceed with caution when commandeering other people's pain to build your case against God because it's insulting. You don't mean it to be insulting, but it is. It's, it's inappropriate. It's offensive for you to appropriate someone else's suffering to make your case. Because the truth is, suffering for millions and millions of people in the world end up being the path that leads them to God, leads them to reliance, not away from God. Let me say it this way. If you have not walked in their shoes, do not assume your destination. If you have not experienced their pain and their suffering, do not hijack, borrow from, commandeer someone else's pain and suffering to draw your conclusion of God. Now, you can use your pain and your suffering, but but not others. Otherwise, it's insulting. You're calling them idiots. And this is one of the things that Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris and these guys, the new atheists, are so guilty of all the time. And they cast this wide net of because there's all this pain and suffering in the world, there can't be a good God, and to believe in one is simple-minded and stupid. To which I would say, well, you need to go and actually talk one-on-one to people who are experiencing pain and suffering, all of them in the world, because what you'll discover is that, again, extraordinary suffering often leads to extraordinary confidence in God. One, one, a, a moment that I will never forget was years ago, uh, my family, we joined with a team and the church I was at, we had a sister church in school in the upper mountains in northwestern Haiti, and we actually had almost 200 students that our church alone was helping to, to fund, to educate them, provide clothing for them, provide meals for them, to hopefully set them up to where they could be actually uh, able to sustain a family in the future. So we traveled down there to spend 10 days. Our youngest was nine at the time and flew into Port-au-Prince and then Lake Kai. And then we traveled up way up into the mountains to this village, about a three and a half hour journey. And we get up there. And we think we're, we're going to go into town and meet the pastor that we're partnered with, the Haitian pastor. Uh, but we actually get stopped by a group of Haitians on the outside of the town. They're dressed really nice and everything. And they say, they, you need to wait here. And all this to the translator because they're speaking Creole. But uh, what they explain to us is that they're leading us in with a, with a parade. And there are hundreds of young people and teens and adults. And, and the, the singing and the flags, and the dancing, and I, I will say they don't look like they got a lot of joy on the Haitians are kind of serious, okay, but, but uh, then that the next five days in that village, they're leading us into this town with this singing, and tambourines, and brass instruments, and we're just like weeping, and then the next few days, spending the time with them in, their, in the church services, which by the way, if you ever feel I go long at 70 minutes, you try four and a half hours, okay? So, so we church service, and they're packed in tight, and there's no AC, but they're just smiles, and they're singing loud, and they're cheering, and these people have nothing. And I just, I go, I, I don't know if I have what you have. Like, I, I was ready to just burn my passport. I'm like, I just need to stay with these people. I want what they have. Another great example would be my aunt and uncle who uh, years ago, I had, they had three daughters, my three cousins, 
And Chrissy, the youngest, was born with cystic fibrosis. And so from early on uh, through her life, it was just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of doctor's treatments. She had to take multiple breathing treatments uh, during the day uh, that, that took about an hour for each treatment. And uh, she had a disease that was killing her. And yet Chrissy was contagious with her love for God and her faith in God who had let this happen to her. And her parents, my aunt and uncle, like nobody's perfect, but they, are some, they were some of the most amazing Christian people I've ever known during and after, even though at 16 they stood helplessly by her bedside as she literally drowned in her own body fluids and died. And yet, you couldn't be around them without having their joy and their trust in God be contagious. Another great example is geneticist Francis Collins. Uh, Francis Collins headed up the G Human Genome Project. If you don't know what the Human Genome Project is, just Google it and you'll discover he's an extremely intelligent man. At 71, three consecutive presidents have asked him to serve and continue to serve as the director of the National Institutes of Health. And he wrote a book called A Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. Francis Collins embraces what we would consider macroevolution. If you didn't think you could believe in evolution and be a conservative Christian, you should read his book. And if science is the reason you or someone important to you has walked away from or resisted faith or considered walking away, I highly recommend this book. And in this book, he, he shares uh, one of the things that he talks about is pain and suffering and how to reconcile that with a good God. And in the book, he tells the story briefly of when his college-age daughter was sexually assaulted. And he talks about the struggle, not with believing in God and not with uh, the presence of God. Rather, he talks about his struggle to forgive the perpetrator. And my point is, is if you're ever tempted to leverage pain and suffering in the world as an argument against God, people like those that I met in Haiti, the poorest of the poor, where the world, the less than more than half live on less than a dollar a day, or my aunt and uncle who watched my 16-year-old cousin, their daughter, die, or Francis Collins, they would say, hey, don't you dare, don't you dare leverage my personal pain and suffering to make your argument against God. Because my personal pain and suffering did not move me away from faith in God, it moved me towards Him. It's part of my confidence in God. And we've done this in the past, we'll do it in the future, we'll address the why of pain and suffering, but today what I really want to talk about is, is simply this, injustice and suffering in the world and in our lives is not an argument for or against anything, let alone the argument, an argument or exists against the existence or involvement of the God of Jesus based on pain and suffering and injustice in the world. Now, it's an emotional argument for sure, Absolutely. And, and when you hear people make it, especially based on their own personal suffering, I completely understand. It is natural, it's logical to ask, how could a good, loving God allow this? How could a just God allow this to happen? And even if we haven't experienced it firsthand, I think all of us have enough empathy that we can be, we're able to get that. Uh, but past the emotion of it all. There's actually no argument to be made against the existent or existence or the involvement of the God of Jesus. And if you missed last week, you need to listen to last week. 
Now there is, there is an argument to be made against other versions of God that we talked about in week two, but there's absolutely no argument to be made against, the God, against God as presented to us by Jesus based on pain and suffering. Christians claim to believe in and follow a good, a holy, and a right God who's all about goodness and love. And, 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 and so the fact that there's injustice in the world calls into question the justice of God, but not the existence of God, which means it makes more sense to be angry than atheist. It makes more sense to be disappointed in God than to completely disbelieve. In fact, the classical argument for the existence of God from the Christian point of view, which totally aligns with current scientific understanding, it goes like this. Something exists. Something can't come from nothing. Therefore, there is a necessary, uncaused first cause. Christians call that necessary, uncaused, first cause, God, that created all nature and all that is natural, which means that the first cause is above nature. It is, is supranatural. It's supernatural, which means supernatural is possible. And then Jesus came along and he violated all natural laws, supra or supernaturally, in a way that we refer to as miracles. And then he predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection and is historically documented by witnesses. So we believe there is a God who created everything. We believe that Jesus represented that God. So what Jesus said about God can be trusted. And what Jesus said about the scriptures can be trusted. That's the Christian argument for the existence for God. It's why we take Jesus seriously. It's why we take the scriptures seriously. And it has virtually nothing to do with our experience of pain and suffering in the world. So our experience calls into question, is the God of Christianity really a just and good God, not does the God of Christianity exist? I mean, let me put it this way. If my children came to one of you and complained about how growing up their father was unkind or unjust or absent or just allowed bad things to happen to them all the time, in that case, you would question my goodness, not my existence. The fact that you're talking to one of my children is evidence of my existence. So, follow so far? So, moving on, here's the big question. This is some... What, this is a question someone, everyone needs to wrestle to the ground. Why do we assume, if there is a God, that God is good and just? Why do we assume that? that this pre, the presupposition is, if there's God, God must be good, and God must be just. And since bad and unjust things happen, there must not be or God, or God's not good, or He's just not behaving as He should. And this is a very, very important question especially for those of us who live in sort of this first world Western mind thinking, uh, Western minded people leverage goodness and justice to argue against or make accusations against God, which is based on the assumption that God is good and just. Well, says who? I mean, if you just made that up, I mean, you can't hold that against God. It's like making up something against me and, 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 and or about me and then holding it against me. And I go, well, I never said to be that in the begin, to begin with. So why do we assume if there's God, that God must be good and just? And the answer is, somebody told us that. Somebody told us that about God, right? I mean, think about it. That's why we believe that. Like, probably when you were a child, some, probably someone told you, you know, God is good, you know, 
God is good, God is great, thank you for our food, you know. So someone told you that he was good, but, but the someone who told you that, well, who told them? Where did they get that? See, see this is a big deal. They didn't get it by, by observing nature, because nature is not good, just, or fair. Nature is might makes right. Nature is survival of the what? Fittest. Whoever told you that God is good and just also didn't get that from the ancient gods. In fact, in ancient times, people looked at evil and injustice in the world and blamed it on the gods. For them, it was evidence of the gods. But the liberty, justice, and dignity for all version of God that we all want to believe in, that God was introduced to the world by Jesus. Until Jesus came along, there was no concept of God who, a God who loved every person on the planet. The only closest exception would be the Jewish people. But the Jewish people believed that God loved all the Jewish people, but he basically tolerated everyone else. People said the essence of the gods were a lot of things, but not love. Before Jesus, there were lots of local gods, and the local gods just kind of toyed with the people. They didn't even love the people, and they would help protect the people if the people made the appropriate sacrifice. So whoever told you that God is a good and just God and just treat everyone fairly and that everyone has dignity and value, whether they know it or not, that idea was introduced to the world by Jesus alone. And what's amazing, it was introduced by Jesus at a time when there was neither justice nor dignity for anyone. The rich ruled over the poor. The powerful ruled over the non-powerful. If you had the gold, you made the rules. Might made right. It was a world where women had no place in society. You didn't even name, I mean, we've got so many beautiful little coronials around here. You didn't even name your baby for like a year or two because they might not even live. It was a world where by modern standards there was no dignity no fairness, no justice. Into that world stepped Jesus, claimed that every single person had dignity and that God loved them all. And, the, and, and here's the most amazing thing at all. Jesus' first century followers who paid dearly, paid dearly for their faith, who were, were treated with unimaginable injustice, persecuted, not because they resisted something or fought something or, 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 or took up arms for essentially believing something. Jesus' first century followers embraced a God that was good and just in a culture that was characterized by injustice. How did they do that? I'm just telling you, if the Christian God had been so fragile that he could be argued out of existence because of pain and suffering and injustice, the Christian God would never have made it out of the first century. Because it all began with the most perfectly good person suffering and experiencing the greatest of pain, suffering, and injustice. And for almost 300 years after Jesus' resurrection, followers of Jesus' God were persecuted. So many years after his time with Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, John, uh, an eyewitness to everything Jesus, he wrote these words. We looked at just a snippet last week. He says, dear friends, he's writing to Christians, let us love one another. Why, John? Because it's the nice thing to do and we need to be civil so everyone needs to love one another? No, they, they didn't think that way back then. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. And if we had been with John in that moment, be like, seriously, John? 
I mean, look, look at where you are. You have been imprisoned in utter isolation. At any moment, they could walk you out and behead you like they did Paul. You and all your friends are being treated unjustly. Love one another. Love is from God. Whoever does not love does not know our God because our God is love. So if you think if there's a God, He's a loving God, again, we need to understand that that is not original with you or with me or the person that told you. That concept was introduced into the world at a time of extraordinary injustice by Jesus. This is where the love God came from, as well as our, our basis for justice. Because our basis of justice is that every single person has inherent value and dignity. And I'm telling you, that's not natural. If you exclude God from the conversation and just go with nature and what's natural, you're smart enough to know that you do not arrive here at human dignity and value. Nature, natural, natural selection, survival of the fittest, that's where you arrive. That means the most powerful overwhelm, overcome, dominate, exterminate the weaker. There is no justice or natural in nature like we imagine justice. In fact, Stephen Hawking is an expert in theoretical physics and cosmology at his uh, lecture in Cambridge back in the 90s. He said the following, and the implications of this are, are staggering. This is just part of what he said. He said, the terror that stalks my mind is that we have arrived on the scene because of evolution, because of naturalistic selection. And natural selection assumes natural rejection which means we have arrived here because of our aggression. And my hope is that somehow we can keep from eating each other up for another 100 years. At that point, science would have devised a scheme to take us all into different planets of the universe and not, no one atrocity would destroy all of us at the same time. See, Hawking was unavoidably caught in a dilemma. If there is no God... And we are therefore trapped between determinism and aggression and violence through which man has evolved. That's our reality. And what was his solution? He said the only hope for mankind is that science will enable us to move to other planets and split up. <laughs> because if we don't split up, we will eventually annihilate ourselves. Now why would he say that? Because as someone who deeply believed in natural selection before his death, he understood the nature of natural selection is not dignity. It is not justice. It is rejection and aggression. And just watch the first 10 minutes of any evening news program. Spend a few minutes on social media and there it is. Rejection and aggression. As we said, the first message of the series, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, the new atheist, they've shown that in a godless universe, everything is driven entirely by the laws of physics and nature, and we are nothing more than chemistry and biology. That's it. And according to someone incredibly intelligent, who deeply believed in what is natural, we will eventually destroy ourselves. Because natural law and natural selection knows nothing of justice, of love, or dignity. And at best, natural selection knows tolerance. Now the implication, again, it, it, it's just staggering. You can reverse this. 
and to say the best way to get rid of injustice in the world is to get rid of God. Just get rid of God because when the God of Jesus leaves, justice leaves with him. If we could just get rid of God, we could get rid of this haunting sense of right and wrong and ought and ought not and just and unjust and fair and unfair. I mean, once there is no objective standard for justice, injustice ceases to exist. And do you know what we're left with when we have no objective objective standard of justice? We have my justice. We have your justice. We're left with Nazi justice and ISIS justice, and Taliban justice, and majority justice, and white supremacist justice, and, and nature's justice, and street justice, and rich, and power justice. I mean, you have your justice, and I have mine, and don't you dare tell me that I'm unjust because that's your sense of justice, and the only way you can change that is if you're strong enough to overpower me and then let your justice prevail. You know, if you just bother me enough, I eliminate you, and you have no one, you have nothing to appeal to when God walks out the door. When we reject God because of injustice in the world, we don't solve injustice in the world. We lose the very definition of injustice. Now, if you're tracking, if, if the God of Jesus really is love, loves everyone, and therefore must be concerned with injustice in the world, here's the question. Does the God of Jesus have a solution and the answer is yes, but we don't like it. Third world countries, majority world pro countries don't have a problem with it. First world countries do. We don't like the solution of the God of Jesus. But a complaint is not an argument. Something can be uncomfortable and true at the same time. You and I believe uncomfortable things that are true all the time, and this is just one of those uncomfortable things. See, Jesus brought God is love. Love comes from God. But the important thing is, that's not all he said. Because the Jesus who said God is love also taught, fortunately, that God is just. You've got to take the whole thing or none of it. The part that we find so offensive, Jesus couldn't have been any clearer about. In the future, the day will come where there will be the very thing that we accuse God of neglecting. Justice for all. There is no justice without judgment. See, it's kind of like when you get a traffic ticket. Maybe for violating that whole suggested speed limit thing. Uh, they give you this piece of paper, right? And then they let you go. And you're kind of free to go on with your day. But on this piece of paper, there is a declaration of a date by which you must make payment for your offense or you must appear before a judge and plead your case. But either way, you're living your day-to-day -day life knowing that in the future a date has been set. And that date is Judgment Day. So this is something we experience in day-to-day -day life. This is not a foreign or difficult concept to get. And here's where our culture push, pushes back. I don't want a judgmental God. I don't want to believe in judgment. But, but listen, you, if you want justice... You have to embrace judgment. You cannot have justice without judgment. But you know why we resist the idea of judgment? It's because in all of our hearts, we know we fall short. And so this resistance to judgment exposes our hypocrisy. Because here's what I want. I want justice for you. <laughs> I want mercy for me. 
I want you to pay for everything that you've done to, uh, to, to me, to hurt me, that hurt my kids or my family. I want you to pay for everything that, that, that you've done to maybe hurt my friends or wrong my friends or hurt or harm citizens of my country. But when I stand before God, if such a thing is going to happen, uh, I want to be able to state my case and go, have God go, oh, well, you get to go over in the exception section. You're okay. You get a pass. And as soon as we introduce the idea that God has to be a God of judgment, because justice requires judgment, we get nervous. But who are we nervous for? Not the people who offended us because they deserve it. Who are we nervous for? Ourselves. Me. Because we know if there's a God, we have fallen short. And why do we know that? Because we have fallen short of our own standards. We, we have all fallen short. We all have made decisions that we knew were wrong when we made them. We knew it was wrong. We, we knew it was a compromise. We knew it would hurt someone that we say we love. Yet we would say, I don't want to hurt people that I love. But we did it anyway. Our decision to do what we wanted, when we wanted, with whom we wanted, it not only hurt us, but it hurt others. And we're against that. So we fell short of our own standards. So if there's a God, we know we've fallen short of His. I mean, you can't even keep all the laws of the United States of America. I can't. And all these, again, su silly suggested speed limits. But into a world that fell short, John tells us God did not send a judge. He sent a Savior. Jesus said it. I, I've not come to judge the world, although the world needs to be judged. Even though the world is full of evil and extraordinary injustice, I did not come to judge, but I came to save the world. That's why if you struggle, you step away from Christianity you, or, or stepping away, you need to reconsider because you desperately want what I want. And we, that is an objective standard of justice. And because the power of the good news of Jesus is that God, in his infinite mercy, before he chose to judge, provided a way to save. We want a God of love who cares deeply about justice, but who doesn't judge us, and that's impossible. If you reject the God of Jesus, you reject the basis of justice, and you reject the basis of human dignity, and you know what you're left with? Biology. And biology will never bring you to dignity. Biology will never allow you to have justice as you see justice. But if you embrace Jesus, you get dignity now and justice later. And besides, if anyone had a reason to stop believing in God because of pain, suffering, and injustice, it was Jesus. Because the man who taught us all that God is love and that we are loved by God, that we have inherent value and are worth dying for, was tortured by and murdered and executed by those he came to give his life for. So again, as emotional as it can feel, and I get it, as emotional as it can feel, evil, evil and injustice are not arguments against the existence of God. Instead, they're evidence that we desperately need God and that we need grace and that we need mercy. Evil and justice suffering in the world, they're just nagging reminders that something is wrong, that something is broken which causes each of us to long for a level of justice and restoration in the world and in our own personal lives 
that may not be attainable in this world. It's something that only a just God could and will one day provide. Justice for all. C.S. Lewis said it perfectly. He said, if I find within myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And Jesus says, you were. You were made for another world. And you're reminded of that every single day because deep inside me and deep inside you, you know what could be. You know in your heart what should be. And what Jesus said will be a day, the day, that will come where injustice and suffering and pain will come to an end and everything will be made right. It's a reminder that we all need God. Let me pray for us. Father, in the the chaos and the pain of the last two years, especially three years, however long it's been, God, it's so easy for all of us to just get in this box because we just see so much pain and divisiveness and back and forth and fighting globally. And then there's what we're experiencing in our own individual broken world. And so, God, I I pray for everyone listening to my voice and for myself that however you would do it, that you would cause our hearts and our minds to break out of that box, out of the small world that pain and suffering makes in our lives. And God, that we would see you, that we would sense you, that we would see you work unmistakably in our lives and in us and through us. God, I pray for everyone that is listening to my voice that right now it's not even about the world. It's so much more personal. That again, Father, that you would reassure them that in the fire, in the valley, in whatever it is that they're going through, that you, they have your attention. And when we call on you, you will draw near. So, Father, please continue to to strengthen us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And for those that have been struggling with their faith, God, that you would give them that peace to help them take another step back and not a step away. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.